Well, hello, Grove family, friends. It's good to be with you again today. Um, I am encouraging you to get your Bibles and uh, open them up. Hope you've printed off that page of notes that came to an email to you. If you didn't get the email, you can call the church office, get online, uh, send us an email, and we'll make sure that you're on our email list to get all those things. But let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther and uh, get out that page of sermon notes and get a pen and uh, let's, let's, let's hunker down together for a few minutes. And while you're flipping and turning and getting settled, let me, let me just ask, have you, have you ever been thrown into a catastrophic situation? It's one of those moments where, you know, everything was right. One day you're like walking on a mountaintop and then the next day it's like the sky is literally fallen in. A situation where suddenly you're in great pain, suffering, enduring hardship and difficulty. A time, a time when you literally felt like you were going to drown, like you were in over your head, like you were going to die. <laughs> and when I think about that, I, th I think a whole lot of us would say, yeah, I feel like that today, like right now. Three months ago, our lives were just kind of humming along. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, everything got ripped out from underneath us. And the big question on all of our lips is, now what? What I mean, what's next, literally? How long are we going to deal with this? How are we supposed to think, act, respond, behave? Well, here, here's the deal. The Bible is full of stories of people who have suffered through horrendous difficulty and pain, horrendous hardship. The list of these people is long. Job, Daniel, John, Joseph, Paul, Jeremiah, David, Moses. He, these people lived in grievous times, and there's much that we can learn from their response to their horrific life circumstance. And that's the purpose of this series that we're starting in today. It's called Unwavering. We're looking into the lives of several biblical characters who lived in unbelievably tough times. And, and we're going to see what we can glean from their response to their very troubling situations. So we're beginning the series by, by taking a look into the book of Esther. And while there's a lot of subpoints, there's really only two points, main points that I want to make with you. And the first one is the story. The book of Esther took place about 480 BC. At the end of 2 Kings, we read about the southern nation of Judah being conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It happened in 586 BC, about 100 years before the book of Esther took place. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were carried off by the Babylonians into captivity. Babylon was eventually overthrown by the Persians. Amazingly, the Persians allowed the Jews to return to the promised land 70 years later, which by the way, was prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. You can read about that in chapter 25 and chapter 29. The Jews returned home. They began the process of reestablishing the Jewish state and, and, and reestablishing worship the, uh, of the Lord by rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. But interestingly, many Jews decided not to journey home. A, a whole lot of them decided to stay right there in Persia. Three generations had been born during that 70 years. It, it, was, it was home to a lot of these people. And so they decided 
to stay. In 486 BC, a man by the name of Xerxes became king. And in the third year of his reign, he decided to throw a party. And that's where the book of Esther opens up. So let's begin by setting the stage to the story. The banquet Xerxes threw was for all the leaders in his kingdom. Everybody who was anybody was invited. Nobles, officials, princes, military leaders. And, and this party went on for 180 days. That's six months of partying. And then when the 180-day party was over, Xerxes threw another party. This party lasted for seven days. It was for the common people, everyone living in the capital of Susa. And, and, and Esther 1.7 says that while this party was going on, the wine flowed in abundance, meaning everybody was good and sloshed. On the seventh day of the feast, when Xerxes the king was in high spirits, you might read that as drunk. He, he called for Queen Vashti. She was not at his party. She was having her own banquet, her own party. He called for her. In Esther chapter 1, verse 11, says that the king called for the queen to appear before the people wearing her royal crown. Now, many commentators believe what Xerxes was really commanding his wife to do was to show up wearing only her royal crown. In other words, he wanted her naked. It sounds like something a drunk man might ask of his wife, right? Not surprisingly, the queen said, are you crazy? No way. Which, by the way, is something you should never do either. You, you never tell the king no, especially when you're in front of a group of people. Her response to the king drove him into a furious rage. And that leads to the to the two storylines that appear right here at the beginning of Esther in the first three chapters. The first storyline deals with Xerxes and his need for a new wife. With the queen's rebellion and being fresh at hand, Xerxes called in his lawyers. He wanted to consult them about what he should do, what his options are with his rebellious wife. What's interesting here is the direction the discussion moves to. Instead of focusing in on Vashti the queen and Xerxes' response to her, the lawyers quickly turned the discussion to themselves. And I'm, I'm being serious here. Esther chapter 1, verse 16, the, the lawyers say, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. Moving on in verse 17, they say, and so the women will despise their husbands. And they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. So verse 18, the lawyers say, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. <laughs> you, I hope you get this. The lawyers were concerned with how their wives would respond. If the queen can tell the king no, then none of us stand a chance with our wives. We won't be able to tell our wives to do anything. Xerxes, you cannot let this happen. Is their solution? Vashti out. They, they wanted Vashti ousted as the queen. And the purpose was to strike fear into all of their wives, to all the women of the country. If the queen can be kicked out 
by disobeying her husband, then you got to understand that the same thing could happen to you because you're a lot less than she is. So tread carefully, baby. So Vashti was out. And that pretty quickly led to a proposal, an acceptable proposal, an acceptable proposal for a replacement. We're not sure how much time had passed, but we, as we enter into chapter, chapter two, with the queen out of his life, the king started suddenly feeling lonely. And it led to one of the king's servants making a suggestion to the king. His idea went like this, Esther chapter two, verse two. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the, into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Then let the girl who pleases the king be, be made queen instead of Vashti. Uh, the, the advice, as you can imagine, pleased the king. What hot, red-blooded male wouldn't love a harem full of young, beautiful virgins whose sole purpose was to bring satisfaction to their man? The plan was not only accepted, it was implemented. And an edict was sent out, and beautiful young women started showing up at the palace. But they weren't just ushered into the king's presence for coffee one morning. No, Esther chapter 2, verse 12 tells us that there was a process that they went through. Before, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. They were prescribed for these women. Six months with, with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. And then when their year of preparation was complete, the, the girls were taken one at a time to the king for a sexual encounter. They would go in in the evenings. They would return to the harem, but a different part of the harem. They would go to where the concubines were, the sex surrogates. Now, the purpose was to give the king an up-close and personal look at the favored young women in the kingdom. And the idea here is that the king could pick out the one he liked the best, the one he wanted to be the next queen. Now, one of the women who was brought into the king's harem was a, was a young woman by the name of Hadassah. Hadassah would have been her Jewish name, her Persian name, and the name you're probably more familiar with was Esther. Esther was from one of the Jewish families who remained in Persia. She was an orphan. She had been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And Esther chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that she was lovely in form and features. Esther immediately, when she came into the harem, immediately went over the heart of Haggai. Haggai was the was the, one of the king's servants. He was a eunuch in charge of the king's harem. He treated Esther with special care. She got the best of the food. She was put into the best part of the harem. He assigned seven women to her to take care of her and to meet her needs. And when it came Esther's time after her year of prescribed treatments to go in and be with the king, Haggai gave her special instructions. He set her up for success with Xerxes. He told her what Xerxes liked best and how she might please him. In other words, she, he gave her inside information. And all of the coaching and special treatment worked because Esther became the woman whom the king found favor with. And as a result, Esther was crowned the next queen. The king threw a special banquet in her honor. 
He proclaimed a holiday throughout all of his kingdom and he passed out gifts to, 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 every, to everybody. The king was happy again. And when the king is happy, everybody else is happy. Now, the piece of information I want you to tuck into the back of your mind is this. Esther chapter two, verse 10 says that Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background. In other words, nobody knew that she was Jewish. Mordecai had instructed her to tell nobody. Not, not that it would have mattered. I mean, the king was head over heels in love with his new queen, but this secret would become an issue. And that is because of the second storyline that develops in Esther chapter three. The storyline number two deals with a man by the name of Haman. And Haman had a problem. He had a huge temper. And this temper had turned into hatred and it was running rampant. See, a king has many men who serve him in the inner circle of his kingdom. They're people who are loyal to the king. They, they watch out for his best interests. They, they, they watch his back, so to speak. They, they give advice. They serve in any capacity that the king would tell them to move in. And one of the king's trusted servants, these, one of these inner circle people, was a man by the name of Haman. Now, we, we don't know a whole lot about Haman, but here's what we do know about him. First, he was honored. Esther chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that Xerxes elevated him and gave him a seat of honor that was higher than all of the other nobles. Why was he honored? I don't know. The text doesn't say. We just simply know that the king singled Haman out and gave him the most important seat at the table, probably right at his right hand. The text does say that all the other royal officials took to kneeling down and paying honor and homage to Haman whenever he would walk into the room. In fact, everywhere Haman went, people were suddenly bowing down in front of him. And that leads to the sudden big problem in Haman's life. And that problem would have been a man by the name of Mordecai, Esther's cousin. See, Mordecai refused to bow down. Esther chapter 3 verse 2 says that he wouldn't kneel, he wouldn't pay him honor. Now that's not surprising. Mordecai was a Jew. And as a Jew, he was commanded to be very, very careful about who he bowed to. In fact, that was one of the Ten Commandments, the second of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 says, You shall not make yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I, I, I can hear you already. I can hear you saying, but, but, uh, but this is bowing down to other gods. You, you, you were to bow down only to the Lord your God, Jehovah, when it came to gods. But what, what you need to know here is that in most of these kingdoms, the king was considered a god, a deity. So bowing to them would be like bowing to another god. And Haman would have been taking on the same role. He considered himself a god, and he expected all of this homage. But here's the deal. Haman was not a god. And Mordecai wasn't going to give him any part of it. He was determined to follow the Ten Commandments. So everywhere that Haman went, everybody's bowing except for Mordecai. And what you need to know is Mordecai was hanging around a lot because his cousin was the queen. I mean, Esther tells us that he was hanging out at the king's gate. He was in the courtyard all the time. He's getting news about what was going on, sending messages up to his, up to his cousin. 
And so as Haman would leave, Mordecai would be standing. Everybody else would be down, Mordecai would be standing. And, and it caused Haman to seethe with rage. Esther chapter 3 verse 5 tells us that literally he was enraged. And this word enraged is kema in the Hebrew. And it speaks of poison, of venom, of heated wrath. Picture steam literally coming out of the ears of Haman whenever he would see Mordecai. Haman very quickly got to the point that, that all he needed was to catch a glimpse of Mordecai, and he was like flying off the handle. He abhorred the man, and the hate was so intense that it pushed Haman to action. Haman became obsessed with destroying Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. Esther chapter 3, verse 6 says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews throughout all the kingdom of Xerxes. Haman's plan was to go to the king and let the king know that there were people in his kingdom who did not obey the king or obey his laws. Haman's suggestion to the king this trusted number one servant of the king, this number one advisor of the king, this right-hand man of the king, his word was, these people need to be wiped out. And Haman, in a magnanimous gesture, offered to pay for the whole eradication. He offered 10,000 talents of silver out of his own pocket, out of his own bank account to make it happen. So I looked up this week, how much is 10 thousand talents of silver. Well, it's 375 tons. This week, silver was selling at $17.45 an ounce, which means 375 tons would be worth $210,480,000. I'm just telling you, that's a whole lot of hate. Haman asked the king to issue a decree to make it so. And without even blinking, the king took off his signet ring and he handed it to Haman. Chapter 3 of Esther, verse 11 says, the king said, keep the money. Keep, keep the money. Do with the people as you please. The king said, not only can you do it, the king said, I'll pay for it. Here's the signet ring. It's the checkbook. Use this. Sign with this. And that's exactly what happened. A dastardly pot, plot was signed into law. The royal secretaries were summoned. The law was written. It was transcribed into all the languages that, that, that were in the kingdom. And then the king sealed the deal himself by taking that signet ring and putting it into the wax himself. And now with these two storylines of Esther firmly in your mind, you know like I do that they were going to come together. The, the storylines are going to intersect. The edict was delivered. And the Jews living in Persia were now subject to annihilation. The date had been set. But what nobody understood was how close to the king this new law was actually going to land. Remember, when Esther entered into the palace as the, at the behest of her cousin Mordecai, she had kept her nationality a secret. So without even knowing it, Xerxes had signed the death warrant of his own wife. And that's where the story picks up in chapter 4. Suddenly we're reading about the grief of Mordecai. 
when news of the edict came to Mordecai's ears, he, he literally tore his clothes. And then he, then he put on sack, sack, sackcloth. When you, when you hear the word sackcloth, think burlap, this rough material to rub against your skin. Then he took ashes from a fire and he poured them on his head. It was all a sign of grief and mourning. And, and then he made his way to the king's gate, this place where he's been standing for some time. And it was, it's, the, it's the place where, where he's been known, the place where he's refused to bow down to, to Haman. And while he's there, he is now weeping and sobbing and wailing. He's in this state of mourning and grief. He's unconsolable. And Mordecai's grief is suddenly being passed on to Esther. Esther's learning that this person, Mordecai, is really upset. And it caused her great concern. And, and the, the concern of Esther is now pouring out to her cousin. See, nobody brings grief to the king. You, you, you don't want to be the person to bring the king bad news. You want to be the, the guy that's always bringing the king good news. The king wants to be happy and smiling and joyful. He doesn't, he doesn't want somebody who's bringing him down. So you get rid of those people. Esther's concerned that Mordecai's emotional state is going to bring him harm. If the king sees you, if the king hears you, he'll kill you. So she sends fresh clothes out to Mordecai. Take off the sackcloth, buddy. Take, get, take a bath. Put on these fresh clothes. Mordecai refuses. Then she sent one of her attendants to talk to Mordecai and find out exactly what was going on. She said to Hattach, go to him, speak to him, bring word back to me. And that's what Hattach did. The attendant made his way to Mordecai. And Mordecai spilled his guts. Mordecai told Attach everything, told him of Haman's plot, showed him a copy of the edict, and then Mordecai played the ace that he had up his sleeves. He instructed Esther through Hattach that she needed to go before the king and plead for her people. At this point, Mordecai saying, make your nationality known, tell the king, save your people. And when that news came to Esther through her attendant, Hattach, she refused. You, you don't just go stand in the presence of the king. To be in the presence of the king, you have to be summoned. If you just show up in front of the king, chances are you could be put to death. When the king sees you coming in, if you haven't been summoned, he must take a scepter and put it out to you. If he doesn't do that, you're, you're grabbed, you're taken out back, it's off your head. Esther had not been summoned to be in her husband's presence for 30 days. The only thing she saw from Mordecai's plea was death. And her answer was an immediate no. Mordecai was going to have to think of another way to handle his problem. And when Esther's words were taken by attached back to, back to Mordecai and reported to Mordecai, at this point he very calmly responded. And he told his Jewish cousin, Esther, you do not live in an ivory tower. In Esther chapter 4, verse 12, Mordecai said, Do not think, Esther, because you are in the king's house, that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will, will arise from another place. But you and your father's family, you will perish. And who knows that you have come to a royal position for such a time is this. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I love the frankness of Mordecai right here. There's no sugarcoating anything. He let Esther know 
that all of the Jews were in the same situation. Being queen didn't exonerate her from the edict. She was a Jew too, and all Jews in Persia were going to die. Oh, oh, it's true, God does have a plan for the Jews. They're responsible to bring the Messiah to the earth, but the Persian Jews, dead. All of us, including you. Somebody needs to do something, Esther, and Mordecai's mind was set. That person was Esther. Who knows, Esther, that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Maybe you're becoming queen. Maybe your favor in Xerxes' eyes was all for this moment. You're the plan, Esther. If you shirk your responsibility right now, we're going to die. Mordecai is saying to his cousin, don't squander the opportunity. Attached, listen to Mordecai. I'm sure with a little bit of trepidation, he made his way back to the queen and he told her everything. He delivered the words. And this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible right here. Esther chapter four, verse 16, faced with a choice, Esther became resolute. Esther listened to everything that Mordecai said through her servant, and then she sent back her reply. She said in verse 16, go gather together all the Jews who are in the capital city of Susa. Fast for me. Don't just pray. You stop eating. Fast. Fast. Do, do not eat or drink for three days, three nights. I, I, I and my handmaids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. The young beauty queen stiffened up her back and became resolute to her true purpose. And in that instant, she gave up her life. She determined to sacrifice herself for the good of others. Now, at this point, I would encourage you to read through the rest of the book of Esther. It's an amazing story of how God can move even in the craziest of seasons. And it makes me think about the days that we're living in right now. If you told me just 10 weeks ago that we would be doing what we're doing and how we will be doing it and all the potential jeopardy we would be in, not just here in Ohio, but in the world, how our health, our jobs, our families, our church, our well-being would all be in jeopardy, I would have told you you're crazy, but here we are. And it leads to the second thought. We've, we've talked through the story of Esther, and now let's see if we can apply it to our own personal lives. And that's the second point, the application. Takeaways. How do we apply this story to our lives? And very quickly, friends, I want to put four thoughts in front of you. And the first one is this. Pain is part of the human condition. There really are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who, those who have experienced pain and those who will. We live in a fallen world and nobody escapes 
Now, sometimes the pain is of our own making. We make mistakes and we reap the harvest for those mistakes. Sometimes the hardship in our lives is our own fault. But sometimes, sometimes we're innocent. We're innocent recipients of pain. I I did nothing. I just reaped the whirlwind. Lightning struck and it hit me. The source or cause of pain is really of little consequence. It flies at all of us. You live long enough, you will suffer. And here's an even deeper truth, a second point of application. Christians are not immune. You may think that when you became a Christian, all of your troubles were gone, like God was gonna put a bubble over your head and from now on, there will be no hardship or heartache that will come your way. I'm just telling you, friends, it's wrong. Christians are not released from trouble. Oftentimes, in fact, Christians walk, Christians walk into trouble simply because they are Christians. We, we receive more trouble. That, that's, that's the promise of the Bible. Jesus said in, in, in John chapter 16, 33, I've told you all these things so that, so that in me you may have peace because in the world, you're gonna have trouble. You live in this world, heartache, pain, problems, disaster. It's, it's coming your way and it's gonna come your way because you belong to me. What, what had Mordecai done? He simply followed the command of God and he was hated for it. This crazy guy over here with some authority decided he was gonna wipe out every, every person that was related nationally to this man. Listen, friends, of this you can be sure. You will face trouble in your life. The question, the question is when trouble hits, how, how will you respond? And what I want to encourage you to do is change your focus. And that's the third point of application. Suffering is really an opportunity. Now, let's just be honest. When we're cruising along in life, when everything is just going well, we're on the mountaintop, it's easy to be self-sufficient, lose sight of what's really important, just be humming along without a care in the world. But when life crashes around us, when we're suddenly in a state of jeopardy, That's when we find ourselves crying out to God. This is the time when we're seeking God, seeking his perspective, seeking his will, seeking his heart, seeking his plan, which by the way, is exactly where God wants us to be. Pain and hardship oftentimes are drawing us in to a right perspective. So when life crashes in around you, it's really a time to set things straight, to get your life back on a correct course. And if you allow them, the difficult times in your life can set you free. So in seasons of trouble and seasons of suffering, see an opportunity, because here's the point. God is at work, and that hardship can change your life. And let me encourage you with one more point of application. Determined to be useful determined to be useful to the kingdom of God in all situations. Now, when trouble strikes, our tendency is to say, why me? Oh God, why me? (coughs) But let me encourage you with a better response. Why not me? Several years ago, my dad was diagnosed with a terminal disease. One day he was fine. He'd been on a cruise. Life was, he, he, he was on the mountaintop gotten back from Europe, everything was great. And then, and then the next day, 
he, he had a, a bruise on his arm because he scratched. He went to see the doctor, and suddenly he's finding out he has a really nasty form of leukemia. One day he's great. The next day he's told he's terminal. He has a few months to live. I mean, you talk about wham. The rug was just completely ripped out from underneath him. It would have been so easy for him to climb, in, climb into a little ball, you know, roll up, cuddle up, suck his thumb, and get mad at God for the situation in his life. Instead, he chose to see it as an opportunity to make a difference, and, and a difference he did make. He lived for 13 more months. And in that 13 months, he came in contact with hundreds of people who needed encouragement, direction, and love, people who were suffering, people who had cancer, people who were going through chemotherapy. And who are the people who can speak to these people the most? Somebody who's in their shoes. So my dad would walk into this waiting room in the doctor. He'd sit in the room where all the cancer people are hooked up to all the IVs and all the poison being pumped in. He would be in the, in the hospital once again on his deathbed. Doctors, other cancer patients, nurses, family members, friends, fellow Christians. Over the course of the next year, my dad came in contact with hundreds of people who were impacted for God, all because one guy decided to take on the heart of Esther and say, for such a time as this. Esther chose to take the advice of her cousin Mordecai. And because of that, the truth was told to the king. She took a huge risk, but in that risk, Haman was exposed. And salvation came to thousands of innocent people, and the world was forever changed because one person took a risk for such a time as this. Listen, friends, we're, we're living in tough times. I get it. But this is not a time for shrinking back. Maybe, has got, maybe God has brought you. Maybe he's brought me to this day purposefully. We, we are here for such a time as this. What, what would happen if each of us, if you, if me, if, if we determined to see this crazy season as an opportunity? How would your little piece of the world be different if you would determine to see God and live for him? If you would resolve, like Esther, to give yourself fully to the will and the purpose of God, how would things be different? How would people be different? What kind of difference could you make? Let me encourage you to, to bow your heads. And I, I don't want you to walk away from that quickly. There are people in your sphere right now who need help. They need encouragement. They're hurting. They're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They want some peace. They want some answers. And sometimes in life, we can't have any of those things. But here's what we do have. We have the one, brothers and sisters, who holds all things in his hands, including us. And if we will let him, he will give us peace. He will give us strength. He will see us through. So Father, even now, I pray that you'll help all of us to understand you have placed us purposefully right where we are. 
We're all surrounded by people who need love, who need encouragement, who need help, who need support, who need you, who need your grace, who need your forgiveness, who need security for eternity. And Father, we're blessed to have those answers. So I pray that you'll help us today to resolve to be the people, to stand up, to stiffen our backs, and to say for such a time as this. I'm grateful, Lord, for this season and that it causes us to ask the big questions, the important questions. What's really, what's really the bottom line of our lives? Where are we going? What's important? So, Father, help us to deliver that message of love, of grace, of forgiveness, of eternal life that only comes through you. And, Father, may this day be a day that the world is changed, like in Esther's day, because we, like Esther, picked up that same thought for such a time as this. Help us, Father. Encourage us. Give us strength and boldness to step out. It's our prayer in your son's name. We lift it. Amen. One of the things that the first church did when they gathered, every time they gathered, was to partake of the Lord's Supper. You have elements in your house, I want to encourage you to pick them up. Pick up something liquid and pick up something solid. Pick up a cracker or a piece of bread. Pick up some juice. Pick up some water. Coke, if that's what you have. Bring it to the table. And as you do, remind yourselves that Jesus gave these emblems to remind us of his resolve for such a time as this. When he was in the garden, shortly after he instituted the supper, he was saying to his father that he really did not want to do this. He really wanted the cup to pass away. Who could blame him? He knew what was coming. He knew what he was facing. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, take it away, but not my will. What I want is what you want. Your will be done. He was resolved for such a time as this. And friends, our salvation hinges on his willingness to give. Aren't you grateful that he did? Aren't you grateful that he loved you to that end? So, Father, thank you for Jesus, for his determination to take the tough step, for his determination to walk the tough road, for his determination to say like Esther, for such a time as this. And, Father, may we, maybe we worship you deeply today for that gift of grace and that gift of love. And may we be resolved because it has been shown us as an example by Esther, by Jesus, that it's the way to live for others to give ourselves for such a time as this. Help us, Lord. Help us. And we lift it in Jesus' name. Amen.